Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and recognise the important and ongoing contribution they make to the life of this city and region. Today on Work With Purpose, we explore the role of women in economics. Now, I know when I studied an introduction to macroeconomics and microeconomics at the University of New South Wales and barely scraped a pass, that it was the only right and proper thing to step aside for the brainy people and dedicate my time to dreaming up ideas in marketing. Well, today I'm joined by two of those brainy people who've gone on to become leaders in the field of economics in Australia. Cheryl Murphy is Chief Economist at Austrade, where she leads a team of economists, data analysts and information engineers to help shape and guide government policy in the trade, foreign investment and tourism sectors. Prior to this important public sector role, Cheryl was a member of the ANZ Bank's research team, where she specialised in fiscal policy and the domestic economy. She was also a journalist for the Australian Financial Review for five years, including time as the economics correspondent for the paper in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery here in Canberra. Cheryl Murphy, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. Thanks, David. Uh, my second guest today is Dr. Leonora Rees, an economist with an interest and expertise in gender equality, labour economics, economic psychology, demographic and population economics, education, disadvantage and well-being. Her research focuses on understanding the impact of gender on economic opportunity and outcomes. This includes understanding the gender pay gap, women's participation in the workforce, women's underrepresentation in leadership and the role of attitudes, personality traits and societal norms. Leonora is also the national chair of the Women in Economics Network. Leonora, thanks also for joining me. Hi, David. It's great to join you. Now, listen, perhaps a, a question to you first, uh, Leonora. And let's just say it's a little unscientific, but I went to a co-ed high school and I went to university. And as a general rule, the girls were always smarter than the boys. Why is it that more than 30 years later, not, there are not more women in positions of influence and power in the public and private sectors? Well, thanks, David, for uh, that observation and for and for recognising um, that really the underrepresentation of women is not due to any gaps in ability or aspirations or capability, and it has a lot more to do with culture and the environment and workplace norms and the the gender-patterned stereotypes that prevail right across society and that can influence us in so many ways, including women's perceptions of whether or not a career in economics is for them or a career in a leadership position is a viable option for them, not necessarily because they doubt their capability, but because when they look at that environment as it is at the moment, they don't see a strong representation or an even balance of women. And even when there are women in positions of leadership 
or in positions that are traditionally male concentrated, such as in economics or in STEM, it's not always the case that the women who have made it into those professions have a smooth or an easy career. In fact, there can be a lot of uh, a lot hostility, there can be barriers, it can be a challenge for women. It can also be a case that even when women make it into those professions, there's not necessarily um, a level of respect afforded to them that is afforded to their male counterparts. So it's not to do with um, inability, it is more to do with looking at those uh, those uh, workplaces, those sectors and questioning, is it inclusive and embracing of women? But that's 30 years ago. Quite sort of looking back that this was a problem 30 years ago. Why is it that it hasn't changed or hasn't changed substantially enough to to rebalance the, the representation? I think prog- we have made progress, but it's been really gradual. And there is also a perception that just because laws have changed or just because there are now more women and more girls studying these these subjects, that doesn't necessarily translate into change within culture. And there's a lot of what we call implicit or unconscious biases and barriers, which are really hard to pinpoint. And they can be quite seemingly minor, but they all add up into um, uh, more substantial impacts. One example I can give to you, and this is, you might think, uh, surely 30 years later, surely, surely we're not, um, you know, prone to these gender stereotypes anymore. But the research shows that, for instance, a CV that has a male name attached to it is rated fa- more favourably than a CV w- which has a female name attached to it. And so these these implicit unconscious biases creep in and contaminate our thinking and our and our um, actions even without our real without without us realizing it and I think also that's the hardest the hardest part to to really to fix because we think we've made a lot of great progress in visible tangible ways and it's the more invisible intangible hidden ways that is is harder to uh, address. Now, Sherelle, you've sort of gone the hard way here through banking and finance, you know, traditionally male-dominated, then spending time up in the press gallery. What's what's your views on, on why it's been so difficult and what's been your observation through your, you know, stellar career, really, to the position you are now as the chief economist at Austrade? Um um, you're right. I did start my career in banking and finance in the sense that I started um, a role in the Reserve Bank, although at the time as a, an economics graduate, what I was looking for was a policy role. And that's really kind of how I thought about it at the time. But, you know, you're right. I did spend most of my career in banking and finance, um, having worked at ANZ um, and also, as you, as you noted, a period of time as a, as a journalist. Um, I do... I have sort of observed a number of behaviours myself um, which have definitely acted as a barrier to both myself and and the women around me in similar positions. Um, it's really explicit. Um, I also wonder a lot about all the sort of unconscious bias that's affected the decision-making around me for years. You know, the kinds of decisions 
made about me or for me that I didn't even know about. And the people that were making them um, perhaps were not aware of either, you know, the sort of conversations people have about you when you're not in the room. Um, you know, when I first started at ANZ, I worked in a dealing room, which was about 85% blokes. <laughs> you know, it was hard to fit in until people got to know me. Um, and then, you know, after that, I found it much easier. But it did certainly take some time. Um, I had twin babies about uh, 12 years ago. They're just about to turn 12. Um, and I faced many assumptions at that point in my life. And it wasn't from just from those I worked with. You know, there's a lot of my friends and family and acquaintances and friends of my parents who had a lot of judgments about my appetite for long hours of work or my appetite to travel or my willingness to work overseas um, or what I should be focused on. So that I find that pretty challenging myself. Um, you know, I once had a job where... To this day, there's only it's only ever been held by men, of course, except for of course when I had it, and I didn't actually get the the public job title that went with that position, even although I was more qualified for it than many of the men that did it before me and after me. So, I've certainly seen some quite, um, you know, judgmental. Um, decisions around me but there's also as I say there's probably a lot that I haven't seen too so you know it's been yeah, it's been a journey <laughs> but Leonora that sounds like case study 101 you know, <laughs> you know everything that's happened to Sherelle is really what the research is telling you people making decisions making assumptions you know not asking being biased that's right. I think uh, Sherelle has offered some real real world examples there. And I think for women in the profession, it's really difficult to actually identify it yourself and then to admit to it because there is this very understandable aspiration to want to get through your career and, and advance your career on the basis of merit and proving your ability. And I think for especially young women, it's difficult to, to grasp the notion that there are these barriers and biases that are there um, unless you confront them, unfortunately, yourself. But also it's about women, I think, resisting playing what's sometimes called the gender card or or playing the victim. Like, we, we really don't want to find ourselves in that scenario either. So it is about recognising that it is a system. It is a system that's biased. It's not people who are innately biased. And this system has been designed in a traditional way to to, um, to put value on, on long hours, um, to to basic for people to make decisions which are sometimes subjective you know when you're in a recruitment panel there is um, a, a human it's human nature to gravitate or to find an affinity with people who remind you of, of your younger self and so there are all these these ways that uh, I think we need to recognize it's just part of part of the system part of the culture that we're in um, and it's not anyone's fault but we can work towards reconfiguring, re redesigning systems of recruitment and evaluation and decision-making um, so that we can cleanse the system of these, these gender-patterned biases. So, Sherelle Murphy, if I could give you a magic wand and you could do two or three things that would change to arrest 
this bias, and as Leonora said, you know, start to cleanse the system, what would the changes be? So, David, I think that um, one of the first things that organisations can do is they can be quite honest with themselves in the sense that they can go back and review decisions that they've made and make sure that there is no bias in them. So whether that be salary increases or bonuses or recruitment, um, looking at their management, if they go back and say, how did we do on a, on a gender basis? Did we actually award those positions very fairly. And I think when you kind of look back, you can you can really see yes or no, you did or you didn't. And then, of course, it's really important that if you didn't, you go back and you fix it. So I've seen that a lot recently in organisations I've worked in and around, and I think it's really powerful. Another thing that companies can do is, of course, at the recruitment level, they can just make sure that the, the pool of people that they're willing to um, interview is 50-50, male-female. Pretty simple. Doesn't take <laughs> a lot of uh, ingenuity to get that one right. Um, you know, the other thing that they can do is provide role models. Role models are really important. I remember one of the reasons I wanted to become an economist is because I saw Chris Caton in action. Back then you worked for a BT now, yes, he was a man, but, you know, I just <laughs> loved what he did. You know, I just thought, wow, this guy gets up and talks about big trends in the economy and everyone was sitting there watching him completely and utterly glued to, to what he was saying. And, you know, for me, he was a role model back when I was still at um, still in my first years of, of economics at, at university. But I think that those small exposure points can make a big difference. And so if me as a sort of a 14-year-old had seen a woman in that position, I probably would have been even more impressed. So, you know, it'd be great for um, particularly high school girls to see more women in senior positions do some pretty cool stuff. The other thing we need to remember is, of course, that economics is a really broad field. The type of work that Leonora does um, on the gender side is incredibly interesting and and, and there's just a wealth of data out there and we can really draw some interesting insights out of that that we've never had before. You know, equally, some of the work that I do on the macro side in trade, that, that grabs the attention of other people. So we need to show that economics is very much a broad discipline um, and we can cater to many different interests. And there are some, you know, worthwhile role models who can um, perhaps have some influence on, on girls at that early age. So, Leonora, you are indeed the national chair of the Women in Economics Network. So I imagine the mission is really about raising the profile, um, setting out these role models and encouraging uh, young women to to step into this broad and interesting field of of discovery, really. That's right. And David, as economists, we apply economic tools to our mission as well. So we look at the research and we look for what is evidence-based um, examples of how to do this. So we make sure that we are applying economics to, to ourselves. Um, so it is almost akin to a pipeline um, problem where we have to think about all points along the profession. What is the attraction for uh, not just young girls, but for, for diverse um, cohorts of people who are otherwise not attracted to economics at the moment. How do we um, explain to them the diversity of uses and the relevance of economics to everyday life and the broad range of professions where economics can take you, exactly as Sherelle has said. And we've seen that done quite well within STEM. So STEM was conscious about the underrepresentation of women and they launched 
um, a concerted campaign uh, promoting women in STEM. And that was really driven by trying to um, explain and, and, and show examples of how careers in STEM could help people and have, have lead to meaningful, purposeful jobs. And in our work within WEN, in the Women in Economics Network, we really have tried to rebrand economics in a way to make people realise, well, help people to discover how ec at the heart of economics is well-being and making the world um, a better place. Um, I know our definition of economics is um, how do we you know, uh, study scarcity and how do we um, allocate limited resources to unlimited wants, but really we don't turn up for work in the, at the beginning of the day and say, okay, how can I, how can I, um, allocate resources, we, we're motivated because we want to make the world a better place, make society fairer, more efficient, more inclusive, more productive, so that we can enhance wellbeing. So that has been part of our messaging to try to um, illuminate that next generation about the usefulness of economics and to provide those role models. And then as we progress throughout our career, we have to make sure that we're applying um, or, or that we're, we're um, building awareness about the points where uh, there is a risk that females could become disengaged in the profession and, and drop out for a range of reasons that that um, are applicable to economics, but also um, are encountered in the workplace more generally, such as those those um, barriers that uh, Sherelle has described in her own profession. And then at the top end, have a look at who are leading the economic agencies in Australia. And we have some remarkably talented, capable, skilled women and, and yet the majority of those leadership roles in economic agencies are held by men. And so the economics profession needs to look at itself and question, what are we missing out on here? Why don't we have these women equally represented amongst leadership positions? And that applies obviously to, to policymaking more generally. Mm. So Sherelle, uh what sort of a problem does economics more broadly have in terms of its reputation in, in being able to attract very bright, young, energetic uh, males and females, but in, in terms of this conversation with females? Because I, I do remember that classic, you know, commentary from or quote from John Ken Kenneth Galbraith, which was something along the lines of um, economic forecasting only exists to make astrology look good, which I thought was quite quite clever. So does it does it have an image problem? Um, look, I, I have to sort of put my hand up and, and admit that, yes, I think it does. Um, it, how we, I'm going to rely more on the work of others here, but there is some evidence that economics is losing it. Well, as Leonora said, probably to some extent to STEM, but also to business degrees. So now that people can kind of choose a bit more specifically what they do, they may kind of go into that business stream and, and, and sort of skirt around the economics of that or just do the first, you know, sort of minor part of the economics degree, but then find themselves in, in accounting or business management or IT. And I think that's one of the problems that we have is we're sort of not capturing people you know, because they're being, I guess, distracted by other shiny things over here. So um, to some extent, 
it's it's a sort of a default position. But that, of course, means that we need to work harder at making economics cool. You know, we, we absolutely have to do that. So, you know, there's some really clever um, women on the Women in Economics Committee, um, particularly our funders who work with high school students who actually have some great tools to be able to make it cooler, you know, to make it um, more mean more to the to the 14-year-old brain, which I keep going back to, and I'm not suggesting for one second that's where the only problem is, but I think it's where the start of it is. So, you know, we have to make the problems real. You know, as Leonora said, we are actually focused on well-being. We're not really over here thinking about necessarily the, the scarce resources that we have to distribute. You know, we have to make this real for people. We have to sort of give them real examples of where economics actually comes in and, and makes a difference. I mean, I myself was, when I first arrived in Australia, I'm from Scotland, as you can maybe just tell by my accent, you know, we arrived, um, I arrived with my family in, in the early 1990s in the middle of the recession when unemployment was rife. And I saw a lot of unemployment around me. And with unemployment essentially comes misery. It's the real human side of economics. And one of the reasons I got so interested in economics as I got into the later years of high school was I thought, wow, you know, if I wanted to make a difference to, to that unemployment problem, then economics is the tool or the toolkit that I need to get in there and do something. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons I wanted to work at the Reserve Bank when I graduated. So I was motivated by a real life sense of improving well-being. You know, as Leonora says, I think that's really important that we we kind of inspire people because the meaning of the work, um, you know, as this podcast says, there's real purpose behind it. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, don't get me wrong, you don't go home every day saying, wow, I've you know, I made a difference today. But, you know, sometimes you really do. And some days, you know, I walk out of the office or, you know, my uh, home office walk through to the <laughs> through the kitchen at the end of the day at the moment. And I, and I genuinely feel proud of what I've done. So, you know, I think if we can just inspire a little bit more of that, um, then potentially we do we do a bit better. The other thing I'd like to mention, and it's always sort of seen as a bit uncool, for particularly for women to talk about this, but is money. You know, economics actually pays really well. You know, it is a well-paid job. And we shouldn't shy away from that. It's, it, you know, on average across the population, we get paid much better than people who don't have economics degrees. Um, obviously, there are others that sit up there too. But, you know, this is a good career for someone who wants to set themselves up for a, 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 a steady um, a predictable financial future. Economists are in great demand. You know, I work in the public service and I can see it all around me. There is constant demand for economists, data engineers, statisticians, and those who work around the periphery of economics as well. So I can guarantee that if you go into this profession, you will you will have a job for life. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, if I could, Lenora, Leonora, just come back to you and, and, and back to that issue around the systemic change. Now, we are in the middle of this massive structural change being driven by the pandemic where the system that you must have been researching for some time has been tipped on its head in many ways. So as a researcher, I'm sure you're licking your lips to, you know, to get the new data about what this is going to mean. So have you got any sort of early indications as to what this, uh, you know, flexible working environment is going to mean to some of those traditional biases in the system? 
Yes, exactly, David. This whole um, acceleration of working from home and remote technology has certainly shifted us into a new era of work and the outlook really looks like we're not going back to how things were before. And, you know, there's so many things unfolding at the moment that we really shouldn't be surprised by because the research was there pre-pandemic to indicate, you know, where things would go on a gender on a gender basis. So prior to the pandemic, we often talked about working from home as being something that could accommodate particularly women with caring responsibilities to juggle their work and family roles or their work and caring roles. And that was preferential to them potentially dropping out of the workforce completely. And so we, I think the percentage of, of people working and working from home arrangements was like single digits before the pandemic. And then obviously with the pandemic, uh, estimates are around about 40%, I believe, um, of, of people now working from home. And now the indications are that it is likely to be proportionally more men than women who opt to return to the workplace or to spend relatively more time on site, you know, in the office. Um, and so proportionally more women will be opting for something that's hybrid or, or working entirely from home um, to cater to those gender patterned caring responsibilities. Now, what so it we could know, get worse. Yes. So it well, could get worse. And, and that's driven by an understanding of the, the role of unconscious bias and preferential treatment that goes towards workers who are present in the office. And those, those conversations that we have incidentally in the corridor or just being around other people, being able to exchange information, it means that if you are not physically present in the office, you're less likely to be part of that inner circle of information, uh, exchange of, of, you know, project ideas, and also just to make your presence and your voice heard. And the research preceding the pandemic made that quite clear that that was a disadvantage. So yes, we are at a risk of that actually worse is it, what we could be seeing is a reversion back to gender stereotypes where it's it's basically um, baking in women's role as caregivers at home now organizations need to think very strategically about how do we allow and permit and encourage and support people to work from home but do so in a way where we have just as many men opting to work from home and taking on the caring responsibilities as we do women uh, opting to return to the office as well. So we don't see that amplification of gender patterns. If I can just sure, jump would that, in, yeah, David, if you don't mind. Um, I, I agree very um, strongly with Leonora on this point. I think that what we need to be very careful about is making things different in the workplace for men and women. And I think the fact that... Um, that many men feel like they can't take that role as carer or ask for part-time work is just as dangerous as the woman um, pulling back because she feels like she has to. I think there are so many men who want to play a really important role, caring role, whether for their children or for other relatives who need help. And if we show um, any bias towards them doing that, we're not doing ourselves any favours. So listen, just to wrap it up, um, I have two daughters at home, a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old. What advice would you give them as they sort of start to prepare uh, themselves for, for life in the workforce? What, how, how should they get ready 
And I, I think the, the to Sherelle's point, the money will appeal. So that so we're part <laughs> of the way there. But what what would you say to them, Leonora? Uh, well, the research also shows that what really motivates and inspires young women these days is being able to contribute towards solving problems. And we, if we look at the real world problems that we're facing at the moment at a societal level, at a global level, take your pick <laughs> as to which, which problems to go for. So I would say that that is really a pathway, in my, my own opinion, that is a pathway to a very fulfilling, rewarding career where you are inspired by contributing to le leaving behind a solution that will live on, you know, when you're when you're since entered you know in the future you'll be able to look back and say look I contributed in my own small way or maybe in my in a big way towards tackling um, climate change towards tackling inequality towards understanding and making workplaces and society fairer and better and I would say stay true to that motivation of that whatever it is that motivates you um, and look for avenues where you can build the toolkit um, to contribute in that way and also to build your networks of supportive, um, understanding people who share the same values and the same aspirations as you do. And Cheryl Murphy, the final word to you. <laughs> That was just so beautiful. Your pitch? That was a good pitch. But what's your pitch? Um, so, look, I'm going to be blatant and say study economics, you know, for all the reasons. Oh, that too, of course. <laughs> for all the reasons that Leonora said, um, but also because, you know, it's just, it's just damned interesting, you know. It is just really interesting. You've got a guaranteed job at the end of it, a well-paid job. You can buy all the shoes and handbags that you like and whether or not you choose to marry or have kids, totally up to you, but you're going to have a really good time along the way. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, Cheryl Murphy, uh, Dr. Leonora Reese, thank you so much for joining us on Work With Purpose and two outstanding role models for young women to get into the wonderful world of economics, because as I said at the beginning, there are so many bright young women out there, they certainly need to be encouraged. And again, the system needs to take a look at itself to remove the biases that are in the way at the moment that are probably, well, that definitely are um, impacting on the productivity of the country because we don't have our best and brightest doing the work that they should be doing. So uh, Cheryl Murphy, Dr. Leonora Reese, thank you very much for joining us on Work With Purpose. Thank you. Great. Thank you, David. And to you, the audience, thank you for coming back once again. Uh, we really do appreciate your ongoing support. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out uh, this podcast and others, please subscribe uh, through your favourite podcast browser and it is sure to come up. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for the program, please pass it along, share it. And if you are feeling generous, a little bit of a review always helps. So thanks also to our good friends uh, and colleagues at IPA and also the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing and outstanding contribution to this uh, program. And indeed, we do have another series at IPA, the IPA Integrity Series. Uh, and make sure you do have a listen to that. That's hosted by Rena Brunsma of the Australian Public Service Commission. And what it's about is having very important conversations about the critical importance of ethics and integrity in the work of the APS. So make sure you subscribe to that as well. A big thanks to the team at Content Group for also helping make this program come together. My name's David Pembroke. 
We'll be back at the same time in two weeks with another important conversation about the Australian Public Service. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.